Bring back the birch, I say. June birch, the lady trumpeter. Let's see once again the Wilsons, Keppels and Bettys of yesteryear. Before I go into decline, come with me down memory lane. But be careful how you tread. This is Lurgy the Wonder Dog territory. When I left the army, my first job was at the Windmill Theatre. Out of the frying pan and into the foyer, as one might say if one dared. Revudeville, they called the shows there, because they were a combination of decorous dancers in diaphanous dresses, showgirls wearing nothing but strategically placed sequins and fixed smiles, and raw comedians like myself doing solo acts. A rare mixture of review and variety. It was not until some months later, when I played the Grand Theatre Bolton, that I first came into contact with the real variety theatre, or musical, as it was called then. I was one of the new breed of comedians spawned by World War II service concert parties, along with Max Bygraves, Norman Wisdom, Tommy Cooper, Frankie Howard, Benny Hill, Norman Vaughan, Michael Benteen, Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, Dick Emery, Alfred Marks, Tony Hancock, of whom more later, and Jimmy Edwards. And only one of them was there to help me on my opening night. Norman Vaughan was in the wings when I went on, and he was helpless with laughter. At the time, I was doing my shaving act, which, very briefly, consisted of doing impressions of the way different people shaved. And I finished with a duet between Janet MacDonald and Nelson Eddy, both parts being sung by myself. First House Monday is traditionally bad in variety. Landladies and local shopkeepers used to get complimentary seats, and like all people who get something for nothing, were far from complimentary afterwards. I won't dwell on the reception I got. Suffice it to say that I was lucky to make it off stage in one piece, leaving behind me a lynch mob murmuring that stays with me to this day. The owner of the theatre paid me off in 25 one-pound notes after that single performance, at the same time muttering the immortal words, You're not shaving my bloody time. Thus I was fired in the crucible of the provincial variety theatres, slowly being turned into the misshapen Toby Jug I became, until recently, I'm glad to say. There was comradeship in those days, though, a backs-of-the-wall bond against the common enemy, the audience. There were weird and wonderful acts to watch from the wings. Karinga and her alligators. Mike Benteen doing marvellous things with the back of a chair and a sink pump. Foot jugglers lying on their backs and performing miracles with huge red-painted barrels. And one act I will always remember. He used to finish his performance in a most spectacular way. He would put on a helmet with a spike on it and strap it under his chin. Then... When he was ready, he would spread his legs wide and brace himself as a huge cartwheel dropped from the flies above the stage. He would catch it on the spike and spin it around. And every time, if you were standing close enough to him in the wings, you could hear his heartfelt cry, <coughs> as the wheel hit the spike. Then there was an act called Rudy Horn, who did a fantastic routine on a unicycle. After juggling with about a dozen clubs, he would balance himself in such a way that he was able, with one foot, to throw a saucer onto his head, followed by a cup, followed by another saucer and another cup, until there were half a dozen cups and saucers on his head. As if that was not enough, he would then put a spoon into the top cup, still with his foot, mark you, and still balanced on his unicycle. And for his pièce de résistance, he would finish by flicking up a cube of sugar to join the spoon. Now, I first saw him do this at a dress rehearsal at the Palladium. I was standing side stage with Charles Henry, a dry-witted old crazy gang producer. When the cube of sugar went into the cup, he sucked his teeth in a deprecating way. Eh, he's not as good as he used to be, he said, amidst all the applause from the pros out front. 
What do you mean, I said. Charles scratched his nose. He used to use Demerara, he said. It's a vanished world, though. Axe used to meet at Cruise Station on a Sunday, because that was when we all seemed to pass through on our way up or down the country for the next week's engagement. Comics in camel hair coats would exchange gags solemnly in the buffet. Conjurers would chat up chorus girls, singers would complain about the theatre acoustics, and musicians would get drunk. A motley crew we were, if you pardon the pun, with grease paint on our collars and our props in battered suitcases. You don't see us on railway platforms anymore because the business has changed. It's up the M1 in a car to play a one-night stand in a club where the supporting acts are a disc jockey and a group of musicians who believe that the louder they play, the better they are. Or a singer with a microphone halfway down his throat singing, You Need Hands, and using only one. Radio kept variety going in the 30s and after the war when, for a short time, there was a boom in theatre attendance. We comics honoured our catchphrases then. Well, hello there! <laughs> was mine. God, when I think of it, I got away with murder. Now, listen, was Frankie Howard's. You lucky people! Was Tommy Trinder's. The listening public would pay to come to the theatre just to see what we looked like. If you weren't any good in the flesh, you went once round the Empire Circuit and fused yourself. But just as radio gave variety a new lease of life, television came along and killed it. Once people could see their favourites in their own front room, it became too much of an effort to leave the house and see them when they played the local theatres. So, eventually, speciality acts, who, by performing on TV, were giving away the work of a lifetime, drifted into continental theatres or the circuses, and the comics and singers went into the northern clubs for personal appearances. The empires and hippodromes became bingo halls or were knocked down to make way for supermarkets. I know I've taken a long time to get to it, but I'd like to see variety back where it belongs, in a national variety theatre. It's too late to restore the old music hall, so let us at least preserve the art form. Let's have a subsidised theatre where some of the marvellous specialty acts can teach their craft to others before they disappear forever. A school where talented variety acts can pass on their skills. Give aspiring comics a chance to play to audiences who are paying attention to them not eating and drinking at the same time. Allowing them to get laughs without having to use four-letter words to shock people into listening. After all, if a ballet dancer can leap about in a truss paid for by the public, why can't a tap dancer do the same thing? We're all brothers under the leotard. And while I'm about it, I'd like to make a plea for the fast-dwindling art of spoon-playing. There was a cook I knew in the army who could play a chorus of Sweet Soon, a pair of ladles. Unfortunately, he overreached himself one night of the naffy and crushed three fingers. Of course, he was an exception. And to get the best possible tone and fluidity of movement, one should use soup spoons. The method of playing is to hold the spoons firmly in the hand, back to back, with one finger supporting the handles and a gap of about a quarter of an inch between the heads. They are then struck smartly against the hand or any other part of the anatomy, producing a percussive effect. The skillful manipulator can run his spoons up his arm where the corrugation of the sleeve gives an attractive stuttering sound and then glide gracefully off the elbow onto the knee without once losing a beat. An acquaintance of mine never fails to bring tears to my eyes with his performance of Catelby's in a monastery garden using only teaspoons and accompanying himself throughout with impressions of birdsong. <laughs> Clickety-click-click. Ah. <laughs> oh. Talent of this kind is increasingly hard to find. 
Now, at the beginning of this piece, I mentioned a long list of ex-service comedians, including Tony Hancock. And in a minute, I'd like to say a little about him. But first of all, to understand a comic, one has to analyse the requirements of his job. He must have a certain mental toughness, a quick wit, the ability to shrug off a bad reception, and at the same time, possess a sensitivity to be aware immediately of the mood of his audience. For whereas a comedian must deliver his comedy, the audience does not have to give up its laughter. He is then, at the beginning of his act, in a state of conflict with his audience. Two options are open to him. Either he gives them what he wants, or he provides them with what they want. If he opts for the former, he is liable to finish up returning to the rice-pudding factory from which a talent scout plucked him. What makes us go on stage and make fools of ourselves? It's not just the money. It has to be exhibitionism in some form or another, a desire to show off, to, to be noticed, to be loved, and it usually reveals itself at a fairly early age. A budding comedian is the child who likes to dress up in his father's clothes and wear a lampshade on his head at family get-togethers. The boy who prefers to put on his mother's frock to lipstick has a different kind of problem with which we should not concern ourselves here. He draws attention to himself in this way, and if he's lucky, he will be rewarded by laughter and a little light applause. This spurs him on to greater efforts, and he begins to seek wider horizons and larger lampshades. The four walls of the front parlour can no longer contain him, and his desire for acclamation might drive him on to the stage of the church hall. If his lampshade act goes down well there, he'll be so excited by the applause that he is usually hooked for life. All those people out there are laughing at me, he thinks. I love them, I love them. He spends all his pocket money and lampshades for his act, and when he grows up, he becomes a light comedian. It's as simple as that. A clip around the ear roll from his father when he first donned a lampshade might have stopped the rot, but once he has heard that laughter and applause, there is no turning back. And, if he is one of the few greats, he leaves behind a legacy of laughter, especially, and such is human nature, if there's been an element of tragedy in his life. The public likes to think that there is drama lurking behind the laughter, agony caused, ironically, by the insecurity induced by the creation of the laughter. Tony Hancock is one of those rare ones who are bedeviled by success. He was never completely happy in the variety theatre, the strain of repeating the same performance night after night and, and trying to invest it with an apparent spontaneity was more than he could bear. His timing and delivery were never better than when he was doing something fresh, creating and not recreating. That's why he took to television so well. It removed him from the treadmill of the music hall and the twice-nightly review and gave him new situations in which to work his magic. Of the rampaging, drunken, self-destroying Hancock depicted in so many stories, I knew very little. I've drunk with him and been drunk with him in the days when we were both young and inexperienced comics fresh from the services. But it was all good-natured tippling then. The truth for which we were searching wasn't far away. It was there in the bottom of the glass. Strangely enough, the time I remember Tony with most affection was when we were playing on the same bill at Feldman's Theatre Blackpool in April 1949. I was then doing my shaving act and Tony was doing his gourmet British news impressions and some hesitant patter. On the opening night, at about ten past eight, I was rushed to the manager's office to receive a telephone call telling me that my wife had given birth to our first child, a daughter. I waited until Tony came off, he was further up the bill than I was, and told him the news. We'll celebrate, lad, he cried. We had about 12 shillings between us, and although champagne was out of the question, we were determined to wet the baby's head. 
It was a most frustrating night because by the time we had taken off our makeup, the pumps had shut, and the only place open was a fish and chip shop near the theatre. We sat together over our plates of frizzled rock salmon and toasted my firstborn in an aggressively non-alcoholic drink with a high gassy content. Later, we wandered down to the seafront, drunk with the occasion and each other's company. We shared the same dreams of success, and we argued about what we would do with the world now that we had fought to save it, leaning over the iron bars of the promenade, looking into the dark sea, and seeing only brightness. I will always think of Tony Hancock as he was then, pristine and shining with ambition, at the threshold of his career. What happened to him subsequently is for others to chronicle and argue about. I found him gentle and self-mocking then. The demands of his profession shaped him, ground him down, and eventually killed him. But he served it well. If anyone paid dearly for his laughs, it was the lad himself. May he lie sweetly at rest. <laughs>